This is the Campus Report, where we sit down with a graduate from high school currently enrolled in college, giving them the chance to talk about what they're studying and what it's like transitioning from high school into college, and what it might take for them to choose small-town America as their adult destination. Stay with us for this episode of the Campus Report. Well, welcome back to the Campus Report. It's been quite a while since we've been in here. Uh, Today we have special guests that I've been, I think, poking and prodding to come on the show for some time. Um, The Jesse C. Nelson uh, of Milbank, currently. Yep, that's correct. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for coming in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I met you, when did you graduate? What year? 2012. 2012. I photographed your senior pictures. Yep. And we did some musical-themed images. Sure did. Uh, Are you musical still? I am, but... um... One of the unfortunate things about living in a dorm room for as long as I did is that it was hard to play loud electric guitar uh, as much as I'd like. But I went to Augustana and sang in the choir um, and really enjoyed that so experience. You could belt it out there. Yeah. The yep. And I, you know, I, I, I still play. Um, just not enough, unfortunately. So you're here in town. So, well, you graduated from Augustana in May in of 2016. 2016. Okay. Yep. Yep. So I've been free since then um, and explored a lot of different things. Some of it good, some of it bad. And Where were you located for for all of that time? Well, uh, a divide between here in Millbank and Sioux Falls. Okay. Yep. And so uh, when I first got out, um, I did some work with Hugh Weber, Millbank, Millbank native. Um, I coached debate at O'Gorman uh, with former- Standalone or as an assistant? As an assistant. Okay. Yep. And- uh, with with former Millbank coach Doug Cheddar. Oh. Yeah. Yep. He was the other assistant coach there. So um, it was myself and uh, Mr. Cheddar, and then a guy named Bob Stevens, who was uh, has been in South Dakota debate for since the early '60s. Um, what is that like coaching high school debate? It was great. Yeah. It's it, in fact out of in my time between college and now, it's my favorite job I've had, like by a mile. Would uh, you attempt to do that as a career? Uh, well, there's not enough money in it to do it as a career. <laughs> is there not enough money in South Dakota or not enough money across the board? Well, typically how it works is is uh, debate coaches are also teachers. Mm. Yeah. And I don't have a teaching certificate or a teaching degree, and I have not a lot of interest in, in getting one. If I was going to teach, um, I would want to teach at the, the uh, post-secondary level, right? Higher ed um, would be where I would be most comfortable. But I loved I loved coaching debate with them, um, and we had some really great students that I've I've still, you know, maintained some contact with and follow as they're now making their way through college. And uh, that's been, that was really great. How different was college from high school? Well, uh, not a ton. I went to a small college, right? Augustana mm-hmm. has, has about 400 kids a class. It was just under that when I was there. So, oh, so not a whole, I mean, bigger than Milbank, but right. not, not drastically. Right, yeah. So so it wasn't a huge change. I mean, it's a, it's a very small, well-knit community right in the middle of Sioux Falls, and we're sort of on our own little island there. And, it, I mean, I always met new people, um, but, you know, I've been in Milbank now uh, for 10 years since I transitioned from the Twin Cities to here, and I'm still meeting new people all the time here, right? And so it didn't feel that different. In fact, in, in sort of my... Uh, life story and Millbank is is the population outlier because I grew up in the Twin Cities through most of my schooling experience and uh, in fact I was there until the end of my freshman year of high school oh so that was a big change coming to Millbank then. right right and so uh, my high school there was it was Waconia Minnesota and um, I don't remember exactly how many students were there but it was probably comparable to Augustana hmm. 
the high, the high school was in terms of size, right? So a lot more students. Um, and so Millbank is the is the population outlier. It was a big adjustment coming here and uh, adjusting to the, the culture and the norms and, and just sort of trying to get acclimated that way. Were you accepted or were you an outsider? Uh, I, I felt really accepted. Now, I, I, I can't necessarily speak to what it objectively was like, but I felt <laughs> accepted. You know, and there's things now, even now that I've had friends here for, for 10 years that I um, have known and, and gotten close with, but there's still some things that are different because all these kids went to elementary school together mm-hmm. and they went to priest, you know, their parents have known each other for 10 generations, right? And right. It, it, it's just, there's still things I noticed that way. Uh, and that was particularly poignant around graduation time. Uh, just as sort of people look back and are nostalgic. Um, I had such a short well of time to look back on just those three years. And so that I noticed it then. And there's, I mean, there's little things you pick up on, but it's, it's not, any, I mean, it's not a lack of acceptance or anything like that. It's just the nature of the history. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was, I was really, and I, I didn't think that I would be, um, to be honest. And so that was really pleasant and good that I was because I was really nervous about the whole thing to begin with. And then um, if it would have not gone well, that would have just made it <laughs> 10 times harder, you know? And I, I mean, I, I uh, had, yeah, I just had, it was, there was moments there where I thought it was going to be really tough and it, and it really wasn't at least from a social aspect. And that was really good. I think that says a lot about the community. Yeah. Was uh, going to Augustana, did it almost feel like going back a little bit, like back home? Just, yeah. Was it comfortable? Oh, it was. It, it was. Um, and in fact, it was interesting because my path to college was a little bit unorthodox too, because I, all through growing up, I was going to go to the East Coast. I had just made up my mind when I was like seven years old that that's what I was going to do. And I had sort of planned and and uh, intended on that. And it wasn't really until second semester, beginning of second semester of senior year of high school that I settled on Augustana. And so, yeah, so that was, and it was going to be a big university too. I mean, the schools that I, uh, other schools in the area that I'd toured, University of Minnesota, uh, Duke University in North Carolina, I looked at William and Mary in Virginia, Georgetown in DC. I mean, I, I looked at schools that are a lot bigger and fairly far away. Um, and so Augustana was actually kind of the outlier in my pool of schools that I was considering as well. And, um, that was that was really interesting, and I, I never expected to make that choice. And when I got there, I was really glad that I did because I got to know some of my professors so incredibly well. And that was the real benefit of going to a small liberal arts school. Do you think that's not really possible in a big Ivy League school or a big I don't, state it, university? I don't. And I, and just, and I, I, maybe it is if you really, really try with one or two professors, but just mm-hmm. based on the number of students, right? And, you know, I have... Um, one professor that every time I go to Sioux Falls now we we go out to McNally's and have lunch and really yeah we sit down we have lunch and the last time we were there we were there for three and a half hours uh, and just talked about everything she's a, or she just retired now she's an English professor mm-hmm. uh, but she started teaching at Augustana in the fall of 1964 oh man and just retired at the end of the last <laughs> That's gotta day. be a fascinating conversation she, she's a brilliant brilliant woman um, and she was the one that when I was a freshman in college, uh, I went, I, part of my scholarship was a, was a travel experience. And so over spring break, senior, second semester, freshman year, we went to Scotland and she led the trip this, mm. the, the, and we read Robert Burns and, uh, some other Scottish literature and studied some poetry and went all around. And it was really brilliant, wonderful experience. And ever since then, I've, I've worked really hard to maintain a relationship with her, but there's others too. Um, you know, my, my choir director, Dr. Russell Svenningson. Uh, it turns out he was actually a classmate of Miriam Schwen. 
No, are you kidding? The, no, they were they were classmates at Concordia together uh, when they were undergrads. And wow. yeah, and he was my choir director, and he's he's a brilliant, hilarious, energetic man who is is the true embodiment of a Viking. I mean, I, I, seriously, <laughs> I, he's he seems like he seems to me at least, uh, especially as a freshman, like he's seven feet tall. I mean, he's just. Just a large-framed, uh, vibrant man, and so um, I had a really special relationship with him. Uh, my academic advisor, Dr. Joel Johnson, who is an interesting guy. He came from Thief River Falls originally, uh, went to Gustavus, and then got his PhD in government at Harvard, and then came back to teach at Augustana and has been there ever since. Brilliant, uh, brilliant guy, and he and I would talk for hours and hours about political philosophy and debate and he so he was sort of a, a lot of my um academic inspiration going through college and I could go on and on Dr. David O'Hara who is a graduate of the program that I'm just about to leave for uh, shortly I mean he he's been certainly very inspiring to me and a lot of others along the way and it so those relationships with those professors that I got at Augustine mm-hmm. were just incredibly rich and, and and meaningful to me and have really guided me uh, as I've sort of calibrated what I want to do for my for the rest of my life uh, and and figured all those things out so did proximity to Millbank uh, matter it did um, so the background there is uh, my parents split when I was really young right and they um, my mom moved to the Twin Cities and I spent a lot of my growing up experience there I'd come here a lot of weekends but that's not quite mm-hmm. the same mm-hmm. and and so that was and that was part of moving too you know I mean I it's really um, I was really lucky in that I had two parents that were both wanted to be super involved in my life and were both really active and great parents. And I had two sets of grandparents on either side that were the same. So, I, I mean, I, I had all the fam- family support a person could ask for and, and then some. Uh, but but what was really great was, is, you know, going to college in Millbank, uh, or it, excuse me, in Sioux Falls, um, it was so close. And I only had those three years living with my dad. In high school, in high school, and that was it, right? right? So, when I was it, when I was in school, close, it was a lot easier to maintain a really close relationship with him, mm-hmm. and and that's something that's you know been really nice to have that opportunity. It provides a little bit of balance uh, as yeah. as a for a young man growing up, yeah. uh, and that's really good. Do you hunt? I don't. At all. Have you ever? I have a couple of times, and I completely hated it. Really, it's just not my thing. I mean, I, my dad, like as as you are very well aware, my dad is is passionate mm-hmm. about it. To, I mean, that is his number one hobby, um, and I I've tried it, and it's just not for me. I mean, I I don't, you know, I'm not gonna object to it or anything, yeah. but I I just I don't. I've never. It's not my thing. We share golf. Uh, we both really? love, we both love to golf, and so we've Who, who's better? Oh, he is by <laughs> by a lot. I especially when I was in college, I got a lot worse. I used to, because I just didn't play enough. You know, I, it's, the courses in Sioux Falls are expensive, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So no. So we share, we share, we share golf, and um, obviously, I've even when he was, I remember him going through law school. Really? Yeah, because he didn't start law school until I was in first grade. Wow. And so I, I mean, we've had countless interesting discussions over the years related to that, mm-hmm. related to to politics, history. Um, you know, he was the one that taught me how to play chess. So we have all these sort of other inter- interests that, that align, um, but oh, and and being continuously disappointed by the Minnesota Vikings uh, is something that we share. At as, some point, well. you just have to quit, right? <laughs> That's well, he, you know, we, he's been saying that, but he's also been saying it for. I mean, he's fifty now, so he's probably been saying it for forty-five years. So I don't know where that point is, <laughs> but uh, apparently, it's quite a ways on the horizon. Well, they have a big stadium they have to pay for, so right. 
or sell it, one of the two. I, well, we said we should just give Bill Belichick a billion dollars to come fix our team. Anybody. You mean to cheat? That'd be perfect. Well, no, no cheating, but <laughs> somebody's got to fix the culture of losing. Okay, in, did runner. you play sports in school? In high, No, nope. I, 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 was in, I was really active. I was in every musical opportunity that was open to me, and I certainly debated uh, and did speech a ton. But. Do you think that you missed out by not being an athlete in school? Well, so that was one of the things, I mean, that was one of the things that made the transition a little bit more difficult, right? Because I think that there is certainly that expectation uh, in a town like Millbank that that's what you ought to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I did fine, but I just had no interest. And so socially, I, I wouldn't say that I missed out because I, I did end up with such a rich friend group, but it was different. And I definitely felt the absence of that in my life more than before I had moved. Because before I had moved, I was in a, a show choir in, in Waconia that was, I mean, had a $100,000 a year plus budget. And it was like, wow. It, yeah, it was very difficult to get into. And it toured all over the country. And it was just a really intense activity. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of consuming, right? And that was really special. And um, that that obviously wasn't available here. It's just a smaller, smaller community with mm-hmm. less resources that way. But um, I also, because I was so involved in debate and because we our, our, our program had such a history of success and Doug Cheddar is such an amazing human being and coach and teacher, um, that more than filled the void. That, that really became the central preoccupation of my high school career. And I remember as a freshman going through seminar courses or writing a paper or something, and it occurred to me that I was actually better prepared uh, to, to do those things specifically because of the things I had done in debate uh, than I was, than I could remember from anything that I had done in a classroom. You know, it was, it became such an amazing opportunity. And so, so, so no, I don't, I mean, I don't think I really did, but I just noticed it more when I was here, I guess is the difference. And, and I guess when I reflect on it a little bit more length, at more length, the only way that I missed out by not being an athlete is that like, I had to go get people that I liked to teach me how to do things in the weight room, right? How to put together a workout program because yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. I had never, I, I'd never been, I had no, no clue. It just had never even occurred to me to go figure that out. So there was a little bit, I was lacking in that kind of education, I guess, but mm-hmm. not certainly socially or, or academically or anything. No. At the college level, is there a, an air, let's say of importance placed on the college athletes over other students? Well, I can't. Campus? I can't speak to other schools, but I absolutely did not feel that way at Augustana, at all. Um, Wait, I, is that possible because it's not really a an athletic focused school, or or no, is it? And I just I, don't know about it. No, I mean, I you know it, when they talk when they refer to athletes at Augustana, they refer to them as student athletes, intentionally, mm-hmm. and that's one that's of that's marketing. But I mean, they they self identify the students talk about themselves in that way as well, right? So it's it's it beca- it's part of the identity of the school, and there's a huge focus on on academics first and mm-hmm. and that my roommate uh from chaska his name is jake Keneally. he he was a walk-on track athlete and he used to be frustrated because he'd have to do these uh, study tables which were so inconveniently timed and just <laughs> ate out of middle you know a part of his day right yeah. but that was part that was absolutely an expectation of being on the team mm-hmm. and that's because academics are extremely important and so i think it has a lot to do with the with the identity of the school mm-hmm. and then the culture they've created there so yeah. so i can't speak to other schools sure. but in my case at augustana i i didn't feel that there was a particular importance placed mm-hmm. on athletics do you think there should be the the pedestal that in our country and culture that athletics are placed 
where they are? No, and uh, you know, one thing. So I, I've I studied government at Augustana is one of the things that I was one of my majors, and uh, one thing that has always fascinated me is that if you look across the 50 states, you'll notice that in many of the states, uh, the highest paid public employee is a coach at a university. Oh, right. <laughs> you know, South Dakota is actually one of the exceptions to that, believe it or not. Um, the highest paid state employee in South Dakota is the dean of the medical school. Which, okay. Which is a lot more- not mo- too bad. No, that's <laughs> a lot more in line with what my priorities would sure. be if, if I, you know, if in a perfect world, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I mean, they it, it's great in some ways because I, I understand it re- generates revenue and, you know, it, it can bring notoriety and things. I'm a huge Duke basketball fan. Uh, and I'm sorry. I, yeah, I, I get that a lot. <laughs> Um, and so, so, so for many years, you know, I'm used to watching that uh, and enjoying that. But I don't. I think the trouble there, culturally, is that that we forget that it's just a game, and there's a lot of other things that are really important that would be worth spending some money on. And um, you know, in an age where the humanities across the board are struggling to be funded at at full levels, it's frustrating to see Urban Meyer take home a massive contract and a school cut their English program or, you know, reduce their theater program or things like well, that. Well, and, and that goes down to the high school level too. Sure, right? absolutely. I mean, there's, in Milbank, there's really not good funding for the arts. No, and, uh, you know, I don't, I think it's changed some, but like when I was here, uh, you know, part of the reason why the debate program was so successful is because Doug Cheddar is a pit bull uh, right. and, and would fight hard for dollars mm-hmm. and, we, you know, would. But that was a fight. Right, and I, I don't know exactly how much of it it was, I, but yeah, I, he had to work hard to make sure that things were well-funded. You know, we there are some opportunities that we had to forego. Parents certainly had to be generous mm-hmm. and, and kick some money in. There was fundraisers and things, and um, all of that is great. I, there would be more. The kids in Millbank, of course, are just as smart as the kids at Sioux Falls O'Gorman or just as smart as the kids at, at Sioux Falls Washington and Lincoln, right? And so they can do, they can compete at that level too, uh, but there is an opportunity gap there that is is frustrating. And um, what's I, the fix for it? I'm I'm not sure. It's it's a tough. I mean, that's just a tough thing because you're just dealing with less resources across the board in a small town. I've I've always wanted to see something set up. You know, some sort of if somebody would ever have the drive. And of course, right. This is me talking about. Well, I'd like to see somebody this, but else I want somebody. It, right? You're right. That's exactly it. That's which is unhelpful talk. But I've always wanted to see some sort of private funding set up uh, in in some sort of a trust fund ma- manner, so that the funding is taken care of in in perpetuity. And that would be something that I think would be really great. And I think if somebody ever had the drive and the will and the time mm-hmm. to get it done, yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of debate alumni, for example, that would absolutely get a hundred percent on board with that. And uh, that's that's one small fix, but it, it, that's not going to fix, the, you know, the, the 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 lack of funding to music or to speech or to FFA or to all of the programs that that are underfunded. So that's that's one small fix in a in a much broader picture of issues that that need to get sorted out. Should the federal government be involved in education? I believe so. Absolutely. At the federal level. Absolutely. Why? Uh, because so so the the classical argument against that is that communities. No, are, I don't care about that. What do you think? <laughs> well, I'm yeah. So I'm addressing it by giving okay. the juxtaposition, right? So the classical argument against it is that communities are best left to educate their own kids. I don't trust communities to do that. Could you it's, go to the state level though? What's and, that? And let the states, each individual state, make that control. Sh- sure. Um, but there again, you know, just we've seen recent examples examples across the country, like in Oklahoma, for example. Uh, they they've they're. Re- playing with their history books in a way that is 
Well, I mean, biased would, is, is a nice way to phrase it, right? Or, or I would say deliberately twisting things uh, to, to leave out inconvenient parts of history. And, and so um, I think a national conversation on national standards is a good thing. And uh, I, I think that we've done a lot of frustrating things at, at the national level with education, and that's, that's set us back in some ways. Uh, and I'm, I'm not certainly an expert, you know, so like when, when Betsy DeVos was hung up on whether, uh, what, what the best way to, to measure standardized tests was, whether it's based on progress or proficiency, I, I don't know enough about mm-hmm. it to say one way or the other on things like that. But I, th- I think that at the national level, at least having that conversation is good. One, we can marshal the most resources there. That's a good thing. Two, we have to have, I believe some sort of national standards in place because, uh, it, it's been, it's pretty clear that, um, there are certain places that just simply aren't, aren't going to be willing to do the things they need to do or to create the curriculums they need to, to be up to snuff. And that's a problem. And I don't want to see kids in, in, you know, rural places or, or even urban places uh, be left behind because their local school board is deficient in their ability to put together a curriculum. So I, you know, there's, I realize that opens it up to a certain number of problems, but um, there's more oversight and there's, there's certainly more attention uh, placed on those standards when it's a national conversation rather than a local one. Mm-hmm. What is the point of a national education system? Well, I, th- I think it, several things. One, to create equity and to try to balance out so, you, you know, uh, I, education opportunity gaps, right? So this is where you have communities with lots of kids but less resources and communities with a ton of resources. And uh, we, well, what is a real travesty is to let kids be left behind uh, because of their, their parents' wealth status. I, I think that's, that, that's, that's a real problem. And it doesn't create any sort of equality of opportunity of any, you know, right? So we should all let people at least go as far as their talent and drive will take them. But if you're chronically behind in terms of the education you receive, you're at such a disadvantage that it becomes very difficult to overcome that over the course of a person's lifetime. And, and so, you know, the federal government has a, certainly has a role to play in, in that regard. I think the other part of that is the part we just talked about, where we keep standards in line so that places that have really out there ideas about, about how we should set up a curriculum can be reined in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the problem with centralization, as always, is that you, you can kill some innovation. And so there's certain institutional safeguards that can be placed uh, put in place to, to protect against that. That includes certainly things, you know, um, innovation offices and, well, now I'm just speaking. I, this is good. That's, I, the, I'm, that's I'm, the point. I, no, I'm just saying I'm, <laughs> yeah, way, I'm yeah. way off into, into territory that I don't know a lot about. Um, I'm, I'm certainly not a, an edu- ex- ed- yeah. expert in education, right? I, I would uh, not do as well as even Betsy DeVos in front of a Senate committee on that, but... Um, but I, I just think as a as sort of a dispositional position to take that, that we can create certainly equity and opportunities uh, with, with, with some federal support. And I don't, we don't have to necessarily even, I'm not even arguing that we have to necessarily like set specific curricula, right? So, mm-hmm. so we don't have to say, well, in eighth grade, you're going to do right, geometry right. and these are going to be, but if we just say as, as a standard, these are the things that 
you should know you absolutely have point. to be proficient in by mm-hmm. age whatever but that that's not how it's set up currently correct no and i, I there's a lot of problems with how mm-hmm. it's set up currently i mean uh, nobody in their right mind thinks that no child left behind was a good idea and it's created all sorts of problems uh race to the top is better but not perfect and um there's all this discussion around common core and common core has at least in its in its inception had some really good things about it but the the execution of it was was bungled fairly significantly and we you know so I, I with something like common core i definitely support the idea but what ultimately came out of that was was not tenable and um didn't allow for any individual teaching or any sort of innovation right that's well, that's where you lose the right. innovation and, and that's one thing that i was just going to mention when i talk to teachers and primarily teachers that used to teach right they've retired so far and some that still do but for the most part it's retired teachers that i talk to and you know some of them are still involved with current teachers they're mentoring they're you know they're working with them to try to work them through the process and what they they say is that teachers in today's education system at the high school and elementary level aren't allowed to teach sure as far as they're they're not encouraged to actually innovate they're right. not encouraged to f- be flexible in their curriculum right. and how they teach the, st- the the product. They are required because at this point we have to take a test and the kids have to pass this test or else I'm not doing my job as a teacher. Right. And so we're it, it feels backward to me because isn't the priority, shouldn't the priority be educating the student rather than passing a test? Right. And it's, it's you know, that sometimes incentives can get flipped on themselves and that's a problem and I I do think that teachers is and I'm not I'm not uncomfortable saying people have to know certain things Mm -hmm. but I am uncomfortable saying that they have to teach it to them in a certain way and that's a problem because that does people learn so individualistically and differently all across the board Mm -hmm. and and that's where we lose some of the innovative ability of teachers now I will also say I think that an underlying problem uh, that that compounds this is that chronically across the country teachers aren't paid what they're worth and as a result according to who teachers themselves um, well i'm not paid what i'm worth in either <laughs> i know i if mean it's like, up to me if it's a right? but, but if we have a fair argument i mean i, th- I think that that teaching should be a highly sought after competitive career but to what end because as i'm sure you know in, in, in typical free market terms right it's sought after competitive careers breed excellence well, but, in, in, the, but, in the practitioners what, of that the, career. What is the the um, sought outcome of educating a kid? Of educating a kid? Yeah. A, 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 what, what what makes success? Sure. So I, I think the end goal of education is, is to produce excellent, thoughtful, productive citizens of a republic. And I, I include the, the sort of political notion intentionally because I studied government and so that's I mean I, I'm sort of underpinned by that right but mm-hmm. like the the founders intentionally built a country that that is built around the idea of active participation and and not just yelling and screaming but thoughtful participation useful participation and that means having an educated populace that can debate and think carefully and reason through problems and that to me is the end goal of education. I there's there's the buzzword in education now, and the things that I hear a lot about are talking about you know educating for jobs, and that's mm-hmm. great. We need to 
people need to put food on the table and they need to be able to work in this economy. But to me, that's not the end goal of education. To me, the end goal of education has a lot more about what kind of citizen a person is is more likely to become and and education can't do that alone either that's got to that comes from the family you grew up in the community you grew up in and the schools you go to but the schools are a part that we can control mm -hmm. because we can all get together and say we're going to do better and that's so that's the part that that I was referring to can i mean do you think to perpetuate that some we should go back to mandatory uh, government service i have talked about for a long time the idea that some sort of national service program would be great for young people. Required, um, though, or uh, in, in some in some regard, required. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Something like, something like a mandatory AmeriCorps service um, would be would be excellent. Some sort of civil service. And I understand and respect that there's a lot of mandatory or a lot of conscientious objectors out there, especially as far as it relates to the military. And so I don't think it has to be military service because there are so many civilian uh, projects that need to get done across this country. And that's a really missed great opportunity that we're missing, I think. And, and so I don't know exactly what that would look like, but but some sort of national service program, I think, could be beneficial if it was executed in the right way. The funny thing about you bringing that up is I um, I included that in my senior research thesis Did you really? at Augustana wow. as one of the policy suggestions. So I don't know if you were no. going to the library and doing nope. your homework or if that just came but. <laughs> Come on, it's just intuitive. <laughs> no, that that's fascinating. I see. I'm I'm intrigued because the I, I listened to a few talks from Ken Robinson, um, who is a he's a sir from the UK, mm -hmm. uh, and he's a brilliant mind. And his whole philosophy with education is Western education when it began was really to create um, to to educate the creativity out of people so they could do the same job. You create factory workers. Drones, robots, sure. of, of, of the so of the so system. you're you're talking the industrial education. Then this is post like a Greek model of education. Oh sure, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Because well, when, totally. when you say Western, well, you go back then, right? Because when you say Western, dance, I'm, the arts, that was that was the top, right? And then philosophy. I mean, th right. those were things I'm, that were. I'm thinking of Aristotle's Poetics here, right? No, like I'm, I, I'm talking Lyce, like right. 150 years ago. Okay. The idea of West, well, probably closer to 100. The, the current model of education right in, in, in an industri in an industrialized country where you're where, yeah. you're where you're dividing labor and trying to create efficiency as much as possible yeah so high school is designed to create workers and college is designed to create college professors and we got to remove the creativity out of people because creativity isn't controllable right and, and, I, and so you have this this strange thing and so when, and, and this is why I'm not, I don't know what I think about having a, a overarching federal mandate system mm -hmm. of things that you are required at the federal level, education wise, and, and milestones you have. At this point, you have to be here. At this point, you have to be here. And if you're not, then you are, you're, you're a failure. You, you can't, you, you know, you're not looked at as success. It looks at as an actual failure. And that I think just crushes kids or has the potential to. Right. And I, it, you know, it's got to be somewhere in the middle because so I'm thinking about one of the things that I was so lucky about when I went to Augustana is because I went to a small liberal arts school, mm -hmm. I was able to explore, you know, a lot of different ideas and, and do it creatively and in a way that I never, never thought would be possible. And that was really great. Um, so, so that's true. And I, I, you know, there are so many brilliant people out there who aren't academically talented mm -hmm. in, in the traditional sense. 
I will also say that if you're, you know, if you have really creative ideas, but you can't communicate them effectively, mm-hmm. you're going to have a problem. And totally. so, and so, and, you know, so, so basic communicative abilities, this is speaking, writing, uh, what have you, extremely important. And so there is, there, there is a baseline or certain baselines across the board that I think we all have to do our best to master mm-hmm. because otherwise even no matter or no matter what other talents we have we're going to have a really hard time leveraging them through life. Okay, so then, do you think that we could potentially see more success across the board if we focused more on that aspect of education? Well, again, I I just keep coming back to what I said, which I think I think we would Yes, in in the sense that I think we would experience a lot more success if we stopped thinking about educating people in a utilitarian way, mm-hmm. I mean, and started educating them to be citizens and thinkers and people. And I one of the other things I studied at Augustana, one of my other majors was philosophy, and uh, the the current governor who I worked for in Peer, uh, and who I have a lot of respect for as a person, has talked a lot about the idea that if you're going to be a philosophy major, you're not going to make that much money. So you better, you know, get some sort of trade degree or you better think about the practical. I, I disagree with him. But it, isn't, I, it, isn't it kind of true across the board? If you were to generalize, isn't it kind of true? Well, I, I think there's a half grain of truth in that that belies a lie, or at least an inaccuracy. And I, the, the the thing that I'm talking about is, is he creates a false dichotomy. Mm-hmm. He's saying... Don't be a philosopher. Right. Don't because, go there because it's not worth because it. Because you should be this instead because right. this is what's going to make money, mm-hmm. which which what that implies is that anything that is going to be, you know, resource garnering in your future is what you ought to spend all of your time on regardless of the value of philosophy, right. which I wholeheartedly disagree with. The sort of classical way that I've heard this put that I agree with is, you know, he said you can either be a welder or a philosopher, which is wrong mm. because a welder can be a philosopher. Right. And a philosopher can well, also can a philosopher be a welder? <laughs> I, I think yes. I think very much yeah. yes. Yeah. And 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 so yes. But that that part of education we we squeeze out in the name of efficiency, and that's really troubling to me. And that's yeah. there's there is there is inherent educational value, I believe, in studying philosophy and poetry and music, even if none of those are related to getting a job ever in your life. So so what's the inherent value in playing football? In playing football. Well, I I mean I I think that there's you know team cooperate cooperative learning and athletic learning I mean and learning to control and move your body I mean those sorts of things but and, and mean, even just what it does for your spirit right yeah the, but yeah. You, you could get that in dance as well sure correct absolutely but that but that's not acceptable in our society I don't typically think, I don't think football has unique value okay. But just the the group sport concept, the, right? The idea that you know, learning cooperation and being mm-hmm. a part of something bigger than yourself, mm-hmm. and, and sacrificing for goals that are bigger than yourself, those things are all good things to learn as you're going to move through life. Right. And there's, and, and and of course, the underlying physical education side of it is important too, right? But I don't think that's unique to football. Okay, it it does seem to be the pedestal, though. Sure, or at some schools, basketball. And it, is this because it's a dollar generator? I think that has a lot to do with it, for sure. I mean, people, you know, universities gain huge audiences and and huge uh, revenue streams mm-hmm. from those things. Oh man, universities sure do. I just listened to a report on the radio about the bowl system in the college of football, mm-hmm. and it is it's nothing about the game. It's all about dollars. 
and that's it. right and in the organizations that have come up you know they do some good too so like the NCAA for example provides to Augustana a lot of scholarship dollars even as a division two school to go out and recruit students uh, to come to Augustana which is great because Augustana couldn't afford to do all that on its own so that's a good thing but um, wait where does the NCAA get their money I are, are, are there I, I, dues I mean, that the co- that the schools have to pay to be a affiliate fr- frankly I don't know hmm uh, I, I don't but but, but I know that the NCAA provides a significant amount of money to Augustana mm-hmm. every single year to, to provide scholarships for student athletes. And for some of those student athletes, that's huge. I mean, that, that provides them an opportunity to go to a school like Augustana where they may not have that opportunity otherwise. Mm-hmm. And that's great. I would like to see, and Augustana is really good too. You know, arts scholarships are are quite significant there as well. I'd like to see more dollars there. Yeah, I think there's more dollars spent on athletic scholarships than arts scholarships, and I think that's a shame. Um, but is that not just because more people will come watch a game than they'll come watch a performance? Probably across the country. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that's necessarily true at the Augustana. Community. Well, true. I mean, because right, like yeah. the Augustana Christmas Vest, Christmas Vespers is is extremely popular mm-hmm. and sells out to you know thousands of people see it every year. Right. So, um, there there you know, there's. But that has a. I mean, it's got a reputation of kind of pr- providing being excellent. That. Right. Right. And I think that you know, so you have these outliers. Maybe they're not outliers, but you have these segments of schools that do that. Right. Um, and and some schools stress it more than others. Certainly. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I had friends that went to USD and SDSU, and I certainly don't think that their arts programs there were were nearly as stressed as their athletic programs. And I, I it's so I had kind of a unique college experience because I did go to that small liberal arts school that, that's just different. Mm-hmm. Um, and and a lot of other people don't have that, so I have a harder time speaking to their experience just because I didn't get sort of what I would guess is probably a more typical the, experience. Well, you, you didn't go to a state university. Right, exactly. Um, it, would Augustana and Concordia kind of be in the same playing field? Or is Concordia, are they, is that in a different league? No, so they're sister schools. They're okay. both in the Lutheran tradition, right? And, and so the Concordia Choir is a, fa- is, is a globally mm-hmm. renowned choir for, for its excellence. And um, the professors at Augustana obviously have relationships there at, at St. Olaf um, and Luther College in, mm-hmm. in Iowa as well. So the, the Lutheran colleges in this area are ex- exceptional. Not only because I think they provide excellent academics and have have excellent resources for students, but also because they have such a strong history, yeah. especially in their choral music and in the arts. You know, it comes to mind, and I just got a plug from my school while I'm thinking of it. Um, <laughs> one of the th- one of the resources that I had when I went out to DC and interned was Augustana and a bunch of other Lutheran colleges. In fact, the consortium of, of Lutheran colleges got together and purchased a, a, a condo complex in Arlington, Virginia right next to DC. And so when I lived out there and interned, I paid the same amount for my room that whole semester. That you would have in Sioux Falls? That I would have if I was renting a dorm on Augustana's campus. Really? It was the same dollar amount. And all of my scholarships followed me as well. And and so I, I had a full academic load. I had an internship on the ca- on Capitol Hill and a 10-story condo with a beautiful deck. Wow. All for the price of a dorm room and my same scholarships. Right. So that, <laughs> but but for 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 students who may be lacking in private resources, DC is extremely expensive and hard to get to, and that is that could be life changing. Mm-hmm. That's incredible, and that's that's something that you know, I don't know would have been possible had yeah. I gone to SDSU, for example. Mm-hmm. And so those kinds of resources are just just incredible, and I, I I'm so thankful for for that. What'd you do in D.C.? I interned on the Hill for Senator John Thune. How was that? 
it was it was a really informative experience. I yeah. learned a lot. And actually, I had this short run of internships that stacked on top of each other where I um, I got a lot of government experience. So I had spent the semester before that working on a U.S. statewide Senate campaign here in South Dakota. Uh, it was not John Thune's race. It was Mike Round's race. And then I went out to D.C. and I worked for, for Thune. And then I came back and I moved to Pier and I worked for Governor Dugard in Pier. So I got... In a short period of time, a ton of government experience, sort of in political experience, just all at once. And it was also different, too, because working in the U.S. Capitol building for the third ranking, at the time mm-hmm. it was the third ranking member of the Senate majority, um, to working in, in Pierre Pierre was way different. It was colossal. Yeah. And, you you know, it was it was a really excellent uh, course in how, how governments work. Because the things that we were doing in the governor's office and the things that we were doing in, in Senator Thune's office mm-hmm. were so vastly different. Mm. It was experience that even when you hear it explained to you in a classroom doesn't really make sense until you live it. Yeah. Just different. So when did you become a Democrat? <laughs> did my dad make you ask that question? No. <laughs> um, so I... I mean, everyone you just worked with was not is not that. Right. Yeah, and I I left the Republican Party. Um, How old are you? I'm 25. Okay. I'm going to be 26 this summer. I officially changed my voter registration uh, right before the 2016 election. Before, right before okay. the the ele- the the actual like the months the, before, days before the, the general election day. Like I it was, it was it would have been uh, late October mm-hmm. of 2016 was when I actually. Changed my registration. I changed it to nonpartisan, um, and I and and the reason was is I felt like there was not there wasn't a place for my political philosophy to fit into the Republican Party anymore. Uh, I and there's still a lot of those same views I still hold. I still believe in free trade, of course. Uh, I I still believe that America's interests are best served by a robust foreign policy that partners with our allies and that, that uses, you know, the American military as a, as a force of humanitarian good. So I would say I'm a paradigmatically a foreign policy realist with a, a hint of some neoliberalism in there. Um, but but the change that I felt like I, I saw the Republican Party going through, I couldn't countenance or go, I didn't feel like I, I could go along with. Um, and what pushed you over the edge when Donald Trump was made the nominee was the final straw. Why? That, that was the end of it. So, um, because I so strongly objected to so many of his positions and there, I, I really think we can separate some of these things into different buckets. I think that there is a, a conscientious, intelligent argument to be made on both sides of, of where we should place the income tax brackets, and I can I can deal with a lot of of different uh, opinions related to that, and I think there's a good debate to be had there. What really is the best income tax rates for 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 different incomes? That's fine. Uh, that's there's I think there's a lot of different positions that are all morally permissible there. Um, I think that on the abortion issue, I think that there are two conscientious, well-intended sides, and I think that there's a there. It's unfortunate it never happens that way, but I think there is an intelligent, thoughtful useful debate that can happen there. Um, but for me, Donald Trump was so out of line, especially as in his rhetoric as it related to, to immigrants and to new people coming to this country and to uh, 
I mean, his, the, the history of race relations that we have in this country is so fraught with violence and suffering. And he sought to fester that division, I felt like, and, and, and use it for political advantage. And uh, I felt like that was unacceptable. Um, and that continues to this day. So how did he win? Because we're, we're hours away from a government shutdown over a border wall. How did he win? Uh, so, a couple of ways. Um, as far as how he won the the primary, uh, my diagnosis is that there was so many candidates, and he had a natural base anyway. And we've known this for years, that there is there is a part of both parties that is so far out there. Uh, so, are, that, it, that, that is they the want... assumption then, that, or is your claim that the only reason he won is because the luna, the lunatics said yes? Well, I, not so much that they said yes, so much as they so they there there are people that will not abandon him no matter what, right? People just loved him. There he had this core base of people within the party. The rest of the why part, do you think that is? What's that? Why do you think that is? Because I think that there is there is a segment of this country that that thinks that way and and believes that way. Um, I think there's a lot of people that. It's we, clearly a big segment for him to win, isn't it? Well, again, so I think that the other, I think, I don't think he would have won had there not been 15 other candidates that he was competing against who divided up the vote amongst each other. So if, if, if how did he win the general then? What's that? How did he win the general election then? Uh, Because there is a, a segment of this country that feels, and a lot of them rightly so, deep. So I think, I think there's two different explanations because it's two different, keeping in mind, it's two different demographics that, well, you need, I, I, that you need to get to vote right. for you. But but I think there's a pretty good um, understanding that if he wasn't running, a Republican wouldn't have won in the general. That's That might be possible. And I, I think, I mean, I, I think what really, for one thing, Hillary Clinton was a flawed candidate. That's, that, that is uh, really not a controversial statement to make. Uh, so that hurt. And she had you know, 30 years of political baggage that she was trying to drag across the finish line. And so when you have that big of a reputation following you, that's, that's politically, that's, that's tough. That creates a lot of inertia. Um, but she hands down almost pretty much hands down, got the nomination. Right. Over someone who probably was equally as popular as Trump, but just didn't get the airplay. And I don't think, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure that the, I mean, so we do have some problems with our nominating processes on both sides. Mm -hmm. And, and so there's, there is that, I think, but as far as the general goes, you know, I think that there is a segment of this country that feels very left behind, especially in the Rust Belt. And they feel left behind because years and years and years of free trade agreements have been put in place and the economy has changed really fast. And when they were growing up and when they followed in, you know, their parents' footsteps, they expected a job that was going to pay the bills and be there. And all of a sudden it wasn't. And the economy moved so fast and it left a lot of people behind. And Washington was pretty much deaf to that. And, and so I think there's a lot of people that feel left out of the system and rightly so by the way and i think that part of the appeal of donald trump was that he was so willing to try to say i'm not I, i'm not involved with these people at all i hate washington just as much as you do i want to go drain the swamp blow it up i'm actually going to listen to you and you know that was part of his sort of 
the, the virtue of his unvarnished political approach is that he felt real to people and he felt like they felt like he was like them and that he really wasn't a part of the Washington swamp establishment and that he was going to go and change things and things were going to get better again to make America great again notion uh, I think you know it connects with people and with that because that, that's how they feel and it happened to be that the right voters in the right states voted just 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 barely enough of them voted and and that's how he won i mean we have this electoral system where she wins by three and a half million votes yeah but that's like one and a half counties if you really break it down it's la county and it's a county in but, Chicago. but i'm just saying but right but three and a half million people more voted for her but that's that's the way our system is set mm-hmm. up so it was just the right number of people in just the right states that 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 threw it because if he had won seventy seven thousand more votes than her in montana it wouldn't have mattered or hawaii which is typically a blue state but it only has four electoral votes it happened to be that it was just in the right states that are electorally rich enough to swing the election. No, that, that that's how campaigns work now, though. That's uh, yeah, what you do. I, I mean, I'm not. I'm, that's right, why I'm, he he never went to California because why? Right, and I'm and I'm not debating the uh, the the virtues of that. I mean, that's a whole different discussion, an interesting one, but a whole different discussion. I'm just saying that's how it worked, and he mm-hmm. happened to win in those states, and that's how he wins. the 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 only ma- number that matters is two seventy. Does not matter. Pa- pa- you, yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. But my, I, I guess my thought is, you know, yeah, it, it's a three million vote number. But if you really break that down, it's in some of the most liberal, densely populated counties right. that that pushed her over, population-wise. Right. So d- does that actually say that the country as a whole wanted her? Well, but- yes, I would argue yes because I, I I think you start from the notion that each human being is equal and each vote then at least in theory ought to be equal well and, in, and it can't be if with the electoral system it's not no, you're right you're right, right. but I'm, I'm just talking about in theory each vote in a, in a perfect political world uh would 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 reflect the equal dignity of well each in, in a perfect democracy it would right right and I, right, so I'm just saying, if if you if you accept the notion that that human beings are inherently equal in dignity, then it's not a, that much of a logical jump to make to to make the argument that each person ought to be indiv- equal in in their share of the vote as so, well. So, so should we abolish the electoral college and go to a straight <clears throat> popular vote? I would like to see. Rule. I would like to see that for the presidential election. Really? Yeah, absolutely. So, what would happen then is you'd have California and New York and Michigan or Illinois electing the president every time. Well, right? then it would become well then it would become the job of people to campaign everywhere. So, another well, who way has that kind of cash. Presidential campaigns absolutely <laughs> have that kind of cash. And and you know, so that would I, and I think that would open up all sorts of new opportunities because every single vote you get then mm-hmm. matters mm-hmm. everywhere. So, you don't have to throw away states because if you can go turn out you know, so so let's let's say a Republican can turn out the and rebuild the uh, California Republican Party, and at least make it competitive. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, California matters to Republicans, so you can see Republicans going there. If a Democrat uh, needs needs to be competitive, then they can go to Sioux Falls and try to turn out a liberal vote uh, in a in a liberal area in a in, a, in mm-hmm. a red state, because all of a sudden those votes matter towards their grand total. It becomes. Um, I think more nationally competitive 
because of that. We and and we do have you know sort of a, a population imbalance. And I'm not saying we should abolish the Senate or anything. I think that the Republican notion, small R Republican mm-hmm. notion of the founders is absolutely in place. And the small states have very much a strong protection uh, in the Senate, and will continue to. And I'm not saying is that bad. You think? I'm, well. No, I'm not. I mean, I think that there was a lot of wisdom in what the founders were trying to do. Because, oh, I mean, there's some I've, I've <laughs> listened to uh, some of the newer candidates. I can't think of the name at the moment. Talk about that. That's outrageous. How in the world can a, a state like um, Montana right, or South Dakota have two representatives in the Senate and New York only has two? You know, it, it's imbalanced there. And, and I think I like that because it does. It makes it flat in theory. Because well, then you have the the crazy of the house, which is population right. centered, and then you have it, theoretically kind of, yeah. well, it's, it's kind of yeah, and then you have theoretically a more level. Everyone gets an equal say in the Senate, right? I mean, and it depends on what you mean by everyone too. I mean, because so so like the, well, the in state, today's politics, only half the people get a say anyway. Whoever's whoever controls whoever, the majority, sure, right, and. Yeah, so I, I do think the founders have some protection that they've laid out for small states. Uh, the Electoral College, to me, is is an outdated dinosaur that it, that robs people of voting legitimacy, and that's unfortunate. Um, and I think that there are certain reforms that I would like to see made to Congress. Again, none of these are going to happen because we have to change the Constitution, and that's, that's going to be an uphill battle. But there are some reforms that I'd like to see in Congress. I would like to see the size of the U.S. House of Representatives expanded. I'd like to have, because I'd like... How could anything get done? Nothing gets done now, so how could that get anything done? Well, how would it make it harder? Well, you have you have more chaos. The din would be much greater. I I mean, it, it, it would still work on the same majoritarian grounds. It would just mean that the... the, the well, who would the, pay the for share it? The, would pay for it? Who would fund that? It's it's not particularly expensive to have a, the House of Representatives. I mean, that's not where most of our money goes. Well, no, I know, but if you add several elected seats... They're not particular. What, what would you do? Double? What, uh, what would be? I'm not sure ideal? what the optimum number is. I've, I mean, the the original theory was that you'd want one representative per every two hundred thousand people, um, and so you know that however you'd work that out as close as possible, because there again, and it, that would that would also mean that so, so a state like South Dakota would have a little bit more representation, which means that you as an individual voter in the state of South Dakota would have a little bit more say about what's going on in Washington. And there's some value in that, um, you know. I think, and I think that the, the the brilliance of the Senate is that it requires us to to compromise and get along, um, which is which is <laughs> kind of <laughs> well to the extent that you know. I mean, it's a problem when the government breaks. But uh, two poli- two politicians that I intensely dislike because of how much how I'm also an institutionalist to some extent, and I, I see the value. What, like, what does that mean? The value in the institutions in and norms that we've built up over the history of our political, so precedent, our, our essentially. Politi- well, no, like in, in, in the Senate, mm-hmm. that the norms of the Senate are really important to me, um, and so uh, you know, two politicians that I don't have a lot of respect for for the way they govern their 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 caucus would be Harry Reid and, and Mitch McConnell, who I think both uh, were too willing to give in. To their caucus for the sake of political wins and and ignore the norms of the Senate that we built up over a long time because those are you're talking the nuclear option, pretty right. much as Re- as removing, a, as a really great example yeah. yeah I and which I think are so important because that's that's part of why the Senate exists and and it's I realize that it's not written in the Constitution 
but I think it was an important norm that, that we established and, and I think it's useful because otherwise the Senate just becomes the little house. If it, if it's just strict majoritarian governance, mm-hmm. it's just the little house and that, that flies in the face of the intention uh, of this, of what it was designed to do. So what is the, what has caused the strife that exists in our national politics now? I think the several things, I mean, it's, it, there's no one cause. And I think it, it to, to argue that I think there is would, would be a mistake because it ignores several important factors. But I will say one of the factors that I'm very passionate about that I think has made it worse is Citizens United and the amount of money that we let in, in, into politics uh, because... You mean the idea that a corporation can give money as a person? The Well, I'm, I'm specifically talking about PACs okay. uh, and the idea that we have now unlimited, literally unlimited amounts of dark money being spent on political races and that Members of the United States House of Representatives spend more than 50% of their time on any given week fundraising and not working on the business of the people. That's a problem because it, it, it distorts incentives and it distorts our ability to hold them accountable because somebody like me who has no money because I'm going to grad school, uh, I have less of an ability to affect change than somebody like, uh, we'll just say T. Denny Sanford for example, who can garner political favors. Just simply by throwing money around. Right. Mm-hmm. Or can can push an agenda nationally, and this is, you know, this is Soros and the Koch brothers and everyone, can push an agenda nationally because of their vast wealth. And that's problematic to me. Um, so that I think that's a huge part of it. I also think that when we when we let legislatures set their own legislative districts, that was a huge problem. Because when who we, should set that? What I would like nonpartisan. Com- oh, that's not possible anymore. Nonpartisan commissions, which means it has to be bipartisan, mm-hmm. right? You have to, but it has to be equal, and it has to be done in public, and it has to have a ton of oversight. Because when they do it, they pick their own voters, and they create a hyperpartisan system. How that works is, is if you have a a really partisan district. You know, you just create a, uh, mm-hmm. you have a bunch of, of one party people in a mm-hmm. district. When you have primary season comes around, the person who's the farthest to the pole of their party is going to win over the moderate person who might go and get something done. And so we end up having a, a shift, a polarizing shift, because we send a bunch of representatives to, to, to run the business of the government who are unwilling to compromise, who ran on not compromising, and then we're shocked when we get there and nothing gets done because the government was was designed and forces us to all work together and compromise. Otherwise, no laws get passed or no legislation gets done and bad things happen. Um, okay, th- that kind of falls into my the, the thought that I have as to why we are so divided and why it's just chaos. And right now we're having this issue because no one can agree on not a budget, but on like throwing a budget in the garbage and building a continuing resolution that's going to just, with no recourse or with no uh, accountability, just keep give giving money. It's good. Um, if the federal government wasn't in everything that it's in, if it wasn't in issues that belong to the state, I don't think we would have that divide at the national level. Because you wouldn't have politicians federally or nationally, that are running on abortion or that are running on getting money uh, for certain pet projects. So they're one-issue candidates. You wouldn't have that because the federal government 
has no say in that. If you removed that piece and you took a lot of these um, things, and education is one that I, I do think should be belong to the states primarily, you take that out, then you can't have national candidates running nationally on education priority because it's not their job. Then you go in and you work on the business of governing the country, which border security, um, national trade, let's say, um, probably some infrastructure so you have some continuity within the the states of travel. Like the interstate highway system? uh, Yeah, that that type of thing. So you'd still have some oversight there. Um, But if you took a lot of these situations away, welfare for one, shouldn't be a federal issue. You take that out. Then you don't have anyone nationally running to give people things. You remove the you remove the chaos. That that hurts states like South Dakota, who take more from the federal government in terms of funds than they give it in terms of revenue. Well, overall, so so there's a lot of citizens here that would hurt. I mean, that's it, it's sort as sort of a notion of political philosophy. That's that's one thing, and I think it it ties a nice bow. The trouble is, is that real people get hurt when resources get cut off and that's that's so i'm i'm raising a, a a moral objection on the grounds that that hurt it. i mean i'm not sure that the, the basis that p- pure political philosophy is, is 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 fine but i'm not sure that it's worth hurting people but in the then process but then don't you have to remove don't you have to then from the federal government give everyone everything and keep everything equal in in order to do that if you're going to go morally don't you have to do that no, I'm not saying you have to create pure equality. I'm just, I'm simply saying... Well, that's impossible, but... Precisely. And so uh, that's not the argument I'm making at all. I, I'm simply saying that in in a, in, a, in that political world, right, where, where you basically divest the, the federal government of, let's, uh, this is arbitrary, but let's just sure. say 80% of mm-hmm. the things that it does, and, and you reduce it down to something closer to what it looked like, you know, when Washington was setting it up and trying to get things running... Which what what will a happen? Part-time job. What will happen is is that across the country, a, a vast number of people will be will be extremely hurt by that, both uh, monetarily and uh, just what they have, and sort of their livelihoods will be deeply affected by that. And so, would my, that my, not my, incentivize private industry more and religious organization more to step up? I don't think so. Really? So, no. So so. Companies in, in aren't built to help people. Companies are built to be as efficient as possible and create profit. That's that's that is their sole reason for existence. And America is a generous nation, and our our churches do well. But in times in history, when when you've seen more need, uh, you have not seen the kind of increase from charitable giving that would offset the losses. Uh, that would take place in, in that sort of political realm. Is that because a lot of it gets managed and run through federal entities? But even in communities, I mean, I just I don't see any empirical evidence to indicate that that would be that would be possible. And I would be interested in seeing it, uh, just as as a as a point of argumentation. But in its absence, it would be uh, there again. You're bumping into a huge cost outweighing any sort of long term net benefit. Perhaps, but I, I think the the residual could be there because if you re- shrink the federal government, federal taxes go down greatly, which leaves more money in people's pocket to do with locally. 
States can have a lot more control of what they're doing. They can tax differently if they want to. That's fine. And it's not all going to the federal. Um, it, it just, to me, it, it, it flips it. Now, I, I do believe, unfortunately, that we're too far down the road. Because I, I think if you tore the Band-Aid off, it would hurt really bad. I do. And I might get hurt. That's true. You might get hurt. I mean, there, there are, there, it's real. There, there's some real potential damage. However, I'm not convinced that we're sustainable on the trajectory we're, trajectory we're on. And I think without some drastic change, and, and it may hurt. It might. But I, I just don't know how we continue to go down the road successfully the direction we're going. Well, I, I say I would share a lot of concerns. I don't share deep economic concerns. I think that I mean I think there's some concerning signs in the economy. I'm not worried about like you know a collapse of the currency or anything. I'm just not. Um, I don't see any any particular reason to be worried about that <clears throat> when you have a fiat currency. That said, I do think that we until as it a, gets useless. I, I do think that we <laughs> as it well. That's a whole. That's a, that's a long right. economic oh, argument. Yeah. But I, I I do have concerns about the country as a whole as it relates to our political culture. And that's different. That's not an economic concern, but it's about working together, all of us in on our in that that's at every level, in, including in a in a in a community that's small like this one, or you know my community at Augustana or the state or what have you, working together in common purpose towards our our political and societal goals. But how can you actually work together when government gets involved in moral questions, like pre- pretty serious ones? Let's take abortion for example. I don't believe that that can ever be compromised. I don't know how. Because the pro-abortion side says it's a choice the mother gets to make. The anti-abortion side says it's a life that is required to be protected. Right. Well, how how can you join those two? How can sure, you ever compromise? There are some things where we can't compromise, and there are some things, I would say, where we shouldn't compromise. You know, and, and so, like, going back to the antebellum period there is no moral argument that's acceptable to me to to make the argument that we should say states slavery is a states rights issue incomprehensible and wrong because somebody at some point has to step in and say this is universally morally wrong mm-hmm. and the that that's the only tool left at that point right and and so yeah so there's certain places where we're not going to have be able to compromise, and we're going to have to, to fight it out. And but but that was saying that humans hold this equal value, right? And 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 thus shouldn't be tossed away because someone thinks that this human is less valuable, right? Is that not the abortion debate? I I agree, and I I'm not entirely sure that there is room for compromise on that issue, right? I I think, and I, I it's a abortion is complicated, yeah, and um and so yeah, I'm I don't I'm. I've never been one to say that I think that abortion should be a states' rights issue. Absolutely not, and that's 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 consistent with with my argument this whole way through, right? But, but I I will say that I know a lot of people who disagree with me on abortion, and I respect them and I respect their opinions. I don't happen to agree with them, and I will use you know my energy to advance my political goals in that regard, um, and, and I fully expect them to do the same. And in, in, in an imperfect world, as Madison said, if, if there would be no need for government <laughs> if, if men were angels. But in an imperfect world, this is a system we have. Um, and, and so that's tough. I mean, the, abortion is one of the most difficult issues, I think, on the political spectrum. But I do think there are places where we can work together, like on income tax 
and we because there's a justice argument to be had about income tax. There, I mean, there's there's a there's a policy argument, sure, and like what's the most efficient and what's going to create the most economic growth, and that's great. There's also a justice argument. Should there that, be an income tax that underlies it? What's that? Should there be an income tax? Well, yes, I think so. Um, and why? What's that? Why? Because, why should you get taxed on what you make rather than what you spend? Because any sort of sales tax is, is an inherently regressive tax, and so when when you are spend when you're taxed on what you spend as a percent of your so you you make a certain amount of dollars everyone you know people have an income and then they have to turn around and to live we all have to we all have to have or purchase roughly the same number of things right we have to purchase food transportation housing heat what have you and if you're of extremely small means any sort of tax in that regard is extremely impactful on the rest of your budget across the board whereas if you're of extraordinarily uh, high means uh, your living expenses are minuscule as a proportion of your entire available resources well, now that depends though on how much you spend sure well a little I, bit, but let me let, let's say the millionaire they don't live in the same house that the thirty thousand dollar a year person does they just don't. I mean, well, maybe they do, but rarely. Around here, that might be possible. Well, but, some, yeah, but but, but, but not, they right. but they will drive the sixty, seventy thousand dollar cars, and they will get a new one every couple of years. Yep. Um. And so they do these things. So they're spending more. Right. So theoretically, even if it's the same percentage, they are paying more into the system. Are they not? As a dollar amount, I'm talking about how it affects their lives. Like what 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 becomes of should what it becomes available to them. So, if, so a lower income should not pay into the system. Is that is, they sh- is that the theory? N- no, I'm not saying they shouldn't have a stake in the system. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm simply saying that what they sh- what they owe the system is should be reduced because they have less capacity to give to it. But why why couldn't a let's just for fun say a ten percent tax of that essentially across the board. Because if you for, make, for everybody. Because if you make $1,000 and you pay a 10% tax on that versus if you make $10 and you pay a 10% tax on that, what's left over is so much smaller as sure. a proportion of the whole. Sure. And that's where it gets problematic because that that's when you get com- compounding poverty. And, it, and, and instead of becoming a, and being a country of opportunity, we become a, a country of cyclical poverty that holds people down. We just What we do there is we basically burn off the bottom part of the income ladder and leave a, a huge number of people behind so I think that people should have a stake and they everyone should have to pay and everyone should have to uh, be responsible and I mean that's a fairly non-controversial statement <laughs> I would hope does uh, but but the part of that is is we also have to understand that we need to make sure that we are allowing for opportunity for people that are stuck at the bottom and that's the part I think we're in the last 50 years or so we've really missed the mark and that, what does that look like allowing for opportunity? I, well, there's a that's that's tough, right? And and there's a lot of different ways we could go about that. I again, going back to the original part of the conversation, I think that creating opportunity of education is really important, which is why, you know, the the failing schools in in inner city or, or impoverished communities. And it's not just an urban rural divide, I should also say. I think there's a huge education gap in all sorts of rural schools that hold people down. Um and that's a problem too. So, so it has more to do with what sort of resources are available. We're lucky here in Millbank that you know our community has worked really hard to offset some of the educational gap 
that we might experience uh, as compared to a school like Sioux Falls. And, in, you know, we have good, uh, tremendously edu- committed educators here that work really hard. Mm-hmm. And that helps. But but across the country on the whole, it's it's about trying to bridge those gaps in education. So if I had been born a Rockefeller, I probably wouldn't have gone to Augustana because I wouldn't have needed to. There would have been, I mean, right? And, and Well, it, but had you been born a Rockefeller in Sioux Falls, it's possible you may have, right? It's possible, but... It's, I'm, not, I'm, it's not, I mean, how many people from New York or New Jersey will come to Augustana to go to school? A surprising number. Really? Yeah. At one, when there was a lot of... Indigenous 10%? Of this, 2%? Of what? Of the, of the enrollment. I mean, is it just a handful of people? Um, I, I, well, what was it? I think 48% of Augustana students are from out of state. Um, how much of that is Minnesota, Iowa, North Dakota? I, okay. Yeah. I don't know the breakdown. Yeah. Right. But a number, mm-hmm. a good number. But Augustana also has a really high proportion of international students mm-hmm. that come there. Some of them are extremely successful. Do they have uh, like sister, kind of sister schools in other parts of the country that they go back and forth with? No, they don't okay. go back and forth. We do have sister schools, but they do not go back and forth. Okay. Um, in fact, as as one example, there's a student from Ghana that was, I, I got to know actually at Boys State, but um, he ended up coming to Augustana. He had a, a host family and he graduated from Brandon Valley High School. Wow. He was a student at Augustana and when he graduated, he won a Schwarzman scholarship to study for two years in Beijing, China, which is an extremely prestigious scholarship. And he did very well. In fact, did so well that he just won a Rhodes Scholarship. Wow. And uh, is on his way to, to Oxford. So, That's fantastic. So, um, it, you know, and, and of course the value that he brought to the community mm-hmm. was, was substantial. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah. So we're really proud of him. That's cool. Well, I'm, I, I could keep going because this is we, fun. We, we I, could I keep I like going a, for a long time. I like talking to you. This is fun. Um, one of my passions in life is having in, like conversations that matter. Right. About thought and about what, you know, why people think what they do. Because I, I care less. I mean, as much as I think everyone should think the way I do, which we all do, I think, at some level, um, I care more that people understand why they believe what they believe. Right. Well, that's exactly what I'm going to school for. That's awesome. I'm, my, uh, that, that was the next uh, question. Yeah. So what going, are you doing next? Yep. So I'm going to, in a few days here, I leave for St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. It's, it's a, yeah, it's it's got it's a, it's got a school, one college, two campuses. One's in Annapolis, Maryland, and one is in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Uh, I've chosen the Annapolis one because of the history, um, and that's it's, and it's, proximity it's, to government. Well, at least Washington D.C. <laughs> right. and and, and um, but a lot of it's the history. You know, the St. John's is the third oldest institution of higher learning in the United States. Wow, just behind uh, William and Mary and Harvard. In terms of its age, it's 1684, I believe, was That's when crazy. it was chartered as St. William's School. Uh, so it's been there for a long, long time. In mm-hmm. fact, the main McDowell Hall uh, once hosted a ball that was attended by Washington and Lafayette. Nice. So it's just this tremendous, and it's literally across the street from the Naval Academy as well, which will be kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, the, the the program there, so all of their undergraduates is, are, go through the same program. It's called The Program. Really named, yep. And so, uh, in this modern era of a la carte education, mm-hmm. where people just pick and choose, yep. they don't. There, they they study basically the same curriculum as it's been with minor updates. And I think now they do some computers and stuff too. But it's it's basically been the same since it was it was designed. And they study the great books. And so, the graduate institute that I'll be going to is a is a slimmed down, shorter version mm-hmm. of of that. 
And so in my case, I'll be reading in five areas, uh, history, literature, uh, politics and society, the natural sciences and mathematics, and philosophy and theology. Are the, oh, that, that's a light load. Are, the five, are the five areas. <laughs> and instead of, of reading textbooks, mm-hmm. we will read the original author. So when it comes time to uh, study the Republic by Plato, we will read the Republic. You're not going to read someone's interpretation of it. Right. And or at least primarily. We'll, we'll, we'll read, yeah. So we, what we so in, some pla- in some cases, depending on how difficult the language is to translate, so mm-hmm. uh, Kierkegaard is extremely difficult to translate. So you, it's good to pick up more than one translation sure. to try to get it meaning. It, it's good to do that with any, lang- any book that's been translated. But, um, so we'll, 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 do, we'll do that, and I, I will read in those five areas, and we'll have small uh, student group discussions with a, with a tutor. They don't call them professors. They call them tutors, and instead of lecturing at us, they begin the seminar by coming and asking a question. It's a conversation, right? The dialectic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's it, in fact they they're very intentional with their use of seminar, and we don't mean it like the sort of modern, you know, CEU right. one yeah. meaning of it. So there's that, and then um, I will also be reading um, James Joyce's uh, Ulysses, and working on that all semester. And then in my third class. I will be doing shorter readings and shorter paper responses. So I'll be writing a lot and discussing a lot and reading the most. And I'm so excited about it. So your high school and recent debate skills will really come into play here. Yes and no. So this is that's actually something I've been I've been as I've been reflecting on what kind of a seminar needs to kind of discussion a seminar needs to be I'm a little I'm gonna have to rein in my debating <laughs> uh, because because debate is a a different kind of activity it's mm-hmm. not it, Socrates wouldn't say it's not dialogue we're not in it to pursue truth in debate you have two opposing viewpoints and you, that you're committed to and you argue them hmm. and whatever so whatever if something comes along you have to either try to re, you know reformulate it so that it agrees with you or refute it those are really you're sort of forced into right. this, this this box and that's not what the seminar is the seminar is about pursuing truth or an idea exploring an idea from more than two committed viewpoints and so because so it's really free speech it's free right, thought it is and it's it's a that's lesson fantastic. it's a lesson in how to think mm-hmm. and, and so because i am have spent so long in the debate realm i have i've Ooh, is I, that gonna hurt you it, it, it well it could work against me because when 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 faced with disagreement, you know, the, the, a debater immediately goes into refutation mm-hmm. mode, and I will have to be very intentional, especially when I'm discussing with other students about shutting, about taming that down, mm-hmm. because that's not the purpose. And and you know, I think as I've gotten older, I've gotten better at that. At least I'd like to think so. What well, what is the average age going into where you're going? So the great thing about the Graduate Institute is it's all over the map. Really? So you have you have young people, you have traditional students who just came right out of their four year. Uh, all the way up to eighty-year-olds. Wow! And people that would pe- be fascinating. People from all walks of life, uh, professionals, um, you know, mid-senior career people, people just starting out, like mm-hmm. I am. People all over the map that decided that they wanted to go be a part of this great conversation, and that's one of the things I'm most excited about because the the variety of pers- of perspectives is going to be so mm-hmm. y- unique and and valuable. I think so. I'm really looking forward to that, and it's it's also it's a good it's a good foil to law school, which is what my intention is to do after this, because law law school is, you know, it's it's just ramped up debate. Mm-hmm. You you learn to win, right, and interpret that way. And it's it's also 
legal interpretation is not really, um, how should I say this? It's fairly rigid, right? You know, you have a certain set of laws that you're working within and you have to sort of formulate them. And, you would think it's rigid. Right. And it, it, yeah. <laughs> and so, so this is different. This is a different kind of thinking. And that's, that it's a good foil that way because as I then move through life, I think it'll make me a more educated, thoughtful, you know, useful citizen. How long is the program? Um, I'll graduate in May of 2020. Okay. And so, then on to law school? In the, in like August of 2020, yeah, okay. in the fall. So I'll just have a little summer there in which... And I, is that lined up or is that something you still have to work through the next couple of years? So I'll be applying to law schools uh, a year from now. Okay. Hopefully a year from now I'll know, mm-hmm. given that it's December. Mm-hmm. Um, I would probably... my intent. I'm sort of calibrating which schools I want to go to. I don't... I haven't figured that out yet, but... Um, yeah, that'll be. I'll I'll do those applications next and turn those in next fall. In twenty five years, what does success look like for you? Um, I don't. Yeah, I I don't really measure success in terms of career success. I have obviously some personal financial goals I've mm-hmm. set for myself. Um, the biggest one is that I would like to achieve enough financial freedom so that I can ensure that that my children, should they ever come, uh, get get a. <laughs> or have access to a good education Mm -hmm. in particular. I'm fairly passionate about that, but, um, at all cost to you, do you think? Well, I I would, I I think that that would, I'm comfortable sacrificing a significant Mm -hmm. amount. I mean, you know, one of the things that my dad did for me that was good is that I've always had some financial skin in the game as far as my own education Mm -hmm. is concerned. And that's really good because that makes me make better choices. Yeah. Um, and so something, you know, there's, there's middle ground there, but I, what I wouldn't want is for them to, have an opportunity open to them in every single way except for a financial limitation. Yeah. Uh, that's that's something I'd really like to do. Other than that, uh, success, I mean, I, I would like to be involved in my, my community and, um, you know, success for me is, is sharing uh, things I've learned and learning from other people and, and contributing to the community in, a, in an effective, positive um way and that's that's that to me is what's most important i just i think about you know the the citizen in the polis um contributing to to his community and to his 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 uh, country in a in a meaningful way but other than that i don't you know it's i don't have like i want to be the ceo by the time that i'm 30 i just don't have yeah. I, I just don't think in those terms does um does millbank or a similar type community fit absolutely i mean i i'm you know part of it will be determined as it is for everybody by what's available for jobs Mm -hmm. or what kind of opportunity there is to create jobs i guess you know uh, like in your case or in the case of my dad they made their own space so to speak um so yeah i mean i in my youth it you know my, my my draw to a city for now i think is largely based on my youth and I want access to things, to amenities, right, and experience, right, right. But mm-hmm. that's that's. I think a lot of that's driven by youth. I mean, yeah. I, I certainly, I, I don't. Some people in my generation <clears throat> really have an intense aversion to small towns, mm-hmm. and um, in some ways, maybe it would be naturally for me too as well. But I don't. I really like Millbank a lot, and there's a lot of great things about it. Um, and just like you know, just like in any city, there's of course things that I'd like to see us grow on and change and improve. And, okay. and I think I think that's 
I think that's a productive mm-hmm. thing to think that, Absolutely. right? You can't just think everywhere's perfect. Yeah. Um, so, so what, what is, give me something, one or two things that you can think of that might make Millbank more sustainable and more appealing to maybe your generation. Sure. So I think the education system here is really good. Uh, and in terms of, you know, we have one of the biggest scholarship programs, I think. It's, it's insane. Yeah. Uh, anywhere, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and especially for a town of our size. I, I bet we amazing. probably give the most money away anywhere of any town our size. It's in sure a, close. In the, in the country. I, it, I would, it would have so. to be. You know, it's a huge amount of money. And mm-hmm. that's amazing. And mm-hmm. the community did that on its own. Yeah. And there's a lot of good, I mean, there's smart, you know, really passionate people here uh, that really believe in their community and give back. So that's great. So we get them to, we get them to go to college. <laughs> the problem is, is where we lose people is when they want to come back, mm-hmm. we drop the ball. Mm-hmm. And that's the biggest loss. And How do you not do that? That's really tough. I mean, it's really tough, right? And I, I think I think what it will ultimately take is the same amount of drive that we put into building the scholarship fund. It will take that level of cooperation and effort to start getting people, young people back. So is that a uh, kind of a private... Um a private entity that would need to begin to start or I, I open? Think, I or? think, I mean, it doesn't have to be just private. I think it would be public and private mm-hmm. partnerships. I mean, we can do certain things we can do, you know, the a uh, lot of opportunities with the development board and, uh, the you know, the there's a lot of opportunity, I think, that could be gone after with the Chamber of Commerce and, and those community boards and, and organizations, you know, civil, mm-hmm. civic organizations, um, there's a lot of opportunity there for them to work with the city council and even with the state government and with private citizens and with private organizations, you know, the Millbank Foundation and others, um, to really try to make that happen, you know. And I'm, I'm envisioning um, just as one very cursory idea, you know, some sort of scholarship that exists that um, pays, will provide you a person a full ride education wherever they want to go with the um, – with the requirement that they come back and work in the community for six years or something post school, right? And as 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 part of that, mm-hmm. you know, as they're going through school, they know they have to come back. So you know, they have some resources in the community to keep reaching out to companies for jobs and and try to to build that pipeline mm-hmm. from from high school to college to the community. Do you think that in a town Millbank size that that would really potentially limit? what people could go to school for under that concept? No, because, you know, if, if it doesn't have to be business funded entirely. Right. So, so I'm thinking of something like, you know, somebody who's a community builder and who's been really involved, like you've been really involved. If, if there was somebody from Millbank that, you know, really wanted to get involved in audio production, for example, um, you know, there, there's resources, right here that they could help them at least learn that trade mm-hmm. and down the line there's opportunity for them um or I, you know I, I i'm not thinking of any examples off the top of my head right but i think i think you could do that and like it's it's an open enough community and we're willing enough i think to take a risk on people um that that we could really get creative and have some fun because it seems the primary focus of that of of, of helping sending people out with the intent to bring them back mm-hmm. tends to be in the nursing field right uh, or the ag field well, or the, the like the cheese factory cheese production huge, right? yeah right. and you know, part of that is that's where the jobs are right i mean no one goes to school to go work at a call center right in, well in theory um so 
outside of that, now we do have a, a company in town that's a steel uh, pipe manufacturer, and they do like uh, stainless. Yep. And they make, I mean, they're all over the country in what they do, and they cannot find welders. Right. There's just no one available to do it. Right. I was out, I photographed a, a fundraiser at a college in Oregon uh, two months ago, and, and they, they can't find people hardly to learn how to drive a semi truck across the country. And there's town. There's a town in Nebraska that I've read about that will pay somebody. They'll they'll say, okay, you come here and you do that. This is the job we need. Mm-hmm. Well, we will. And this is this is creative economic development, right? They'll say, okay, we'll buy the house. Mm. So you come here, you'll have a house that's mm-hmm. yours. It'll be you know titled in in it's your real estate deeded to you, but you're gonna go work for this company. Mm. And then the company teaches them what they need to know. Okay. And they go to work. That's that's one form of really creative mm-hmm. economic development. Yeah. Um, that that I think breaks the traditional mold. That that is um, something something that we could. That's something we could. Yeah. You know, look at here, and that could be a huge seller. Right. If our local people would be willing to think that think that right. far out of the box, and I I think Bobby Bolin has worked on a project similar to that where they fixed up a house uh, for that for some for a purpose very similar to mm. that. You know, so so there's opportunities mm-hmm. I think yeah. like that. Um, if there was, you know, if there was funds available, so let's say you're, um, you know, you you work at the cheese factory, but you're well, take Jacques Frazy, for example, right? Somebody who's really creative and mm-hmm. has this wonderful sculpting talent. Um, if if there was, you know, a way for him to to make a business out of that, and there was some pool of dollars that were set aside that he could apply, you know, and say, this is what I, this is my vision, this is my business plan, this is how I think I'm going to make this work, can I get some startup money? And, you know, the community psh, made that available to him. Mm-hmm. That Those kinds of things can be huge drivers. We have to get, it's going it, to, the model for the next century is going to be different than the prior one. I think that much is clear to everybody. You know, we're we're not going to get people recruited and do job do do job recruitment the same or economic development the same way we have, especially in small towns because my generation has a tendency to want to go big and you know a lot of that's following where the opportunities are. Um, so, so Austin, Texas, right? So so to to make that happen, we're going to have to think creatively and mm-hmm. and you know and that's that's very doable. I'm not. Some people are a pessimist in that regard. Some people think that you know. Our best days are behind us, and that the 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 middle America is just dead. Uh, I don't believe that's true. I just think it's an adjustment period, and it's going to take a little bit of creative thinking to get out of this box. And I think that's where uh, people like you succeed and help to make our community better. So, Jesse, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Um, this is it's fun. I really appreciate. It. Well, the chat, and I mean, we could go for days. We can, and you because, know what? Maybe. Uh, and next time you're here, I would love to um, get more. When, when I'm done, you know, and I have an update for you on the post on the back side of things, maybe we can get together and talk. That'd be an interesting conversation to have. Or if you're back in the middle, I would love to see what's happening. Okay. That because just the idea of going and having a a conversational type of education right. at that level, I think would be right. pretty crazy. So do come back if you would. Absolutely. Awesome. This is the Campus Report on the Y Millbank Podcast Network. YMillbank.com slash podcasts. I'm Craig Weinberg. Thanks for sitting in on the Campus Report where we sit down with college kids from Millbank or similar size schools in the area and figure out what they're doing, why they're doing it, and if Millbank would ever be their adult destination. 
Thanks a lot for listening. Have a great day.